Good morning, everyone. Welcome to service this morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, I think we can have a little more fun than we did at the first service. I didn't mention this in the first service, but, you know, the church and the staff and uh, all of you for about four years have been trying to get me to preach shorter sermons. And uh, it's kind of fun because uh, we just did a 360 of me where uh, I think there was like 54 or something. Some of you um, in ministries and ministry team leaders, you guys filled out surveys. And almost everyone said one of their favorite things about what I bring here is the sermon. And then all those same people said, could you bring it a little for a shorter amount of time? (laughs) Something to the effect of it's not that your food doesn't taste good. It's just so much of it. Um, And uh, so... Uh, several months ago, the staff and I designed a sort of an incentive situation for me. Uh, and the thing was, every minute I go over 35 minutes, I pay $2. It goes into a staff slush fund. And so I've paid out lots of money. <laughs> but the positive incentive was if I go three weeks in a row under 35 minutes, ideal is being 30 to 35 minutes, Then I get a prize, and I did it last service. (laughs) That was turkey for me, three in a row. So this is going to be that way also, I assume. Uh, So I'm really excited to preach this, knowing there's a reward waiting for me. All right. So speaking of rewards and the big smile on my face, we're going to talk about happy for a few weeks. We are starting a new series in the book of Philippians. Uh, The title is Completely Happy, and as we go through the sermon, you'll understand that uh, what I mean by that. Subtitle is The Way, the Truth, and the Happy Life. If you uh, read commentaries on Philippians, every commentator will tell you that the book of Philippians is about happiness, it's about joy. And uh, there's been a lot, a lot of study all over the world on the science of happiness. And I feel like over the last couple of years, we've been really coming to some uh, similar conclusions the world over about what constitutes happiness. Uh, For the sake of this series, I'm going to use the word happy and joy interchangeably. uh, Because, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about being blessed... That Greek word is also uh, translated happy. It's the Greek word for happy, happy and blessed and joyful. Going to use it all interchangeably. Okay? And so uh, understand that that's going to happen. And uh, so let's sort of dive into this idea of happiness in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison. He's there unjustly. And so that itself gives, uh, makes a statement uh, about happiness. A couple of things we're going to learn from Paul in this letter about happiness. The first one and the primary theme is that happiness is a byproduct. You can't aim directly at happiness. It's something that happens as a result, not because you aimed at it. Uh, Second thing we're going to see is that happiness is a conscious being's experience of truth, love, and God's ideal. And I say it this way because a rock can be experiencing God's truth and love 
and living into God's ideal for it, but it doesn't experience happiness, does it? Because it's not conscious. We have the gift of consciousness. We are aware of ourselves, which is kind of amazing if you start thinking about human consciousness. Uh, But we experience, uh, our experience of our alignment with God's truth, love, and ideal is what uh, we call happiness. A third thing that we see in the book of Philippians is that this word that's often translated as perfect or complete in the book of Philippians, uh, that describes the work that God is doing in us to get us to increase our capacity for happiness. Because our problem isn't that we don't know how to be happy. It's that we don't have the capacity for happiness. And God is trying to create that capacity in us through his work in us. And that work that God is doing is what Paul here calls perfect or complete. Finally, uh, we understand from this book that happiness, a lot of it can be subjective but at its most fundamental level, happiness is objective. That God defines what happiness is. Because he made us. He created us. He's the author. And as we uh, get in alignment with God's original intent for us, as we get into alignment with what is right and true, and good, and beautiful, our conscious being's experience of that alignment is happiness. And it's not just whatever makes you happy. No, whatever doesn't make you happy, God and his will for us, that's part of the key to happiness. And so we begin to sort of unlock that truth in the book of Philippians. A couple of examples uh, of these truths that I've uh, been able to see in uh, recent um, uh, news. Uh, there's been a war. I don't know if you are, uh, have seen any of this, but there's been a war over the last couple of years about a woman's right, a mom's right, to put up pictures of her breastfeeding her baby. Have you, anybody seen this? Facebook and other places, people just getting upset or uh, staking a claim on this. It's happening, guys. Uh, and uh, it's been an interesting thing for me to read about, actually, because on the side of moms wanting to put pictures of themselves uh, breastfeeding uh, is this uh, situation, that when they breastfeed, they experience such deep, deep love and connection to this child. They feel so much care and concern for this little creature that they're holding, and Everything about this whole idea of breastfeeding feels so right and so good and true. And in fact, uh, moms who are defending this will tell you it has a healing effect on them. That they didn't realize how legitimate they felt. Maybe as a female or in the way they have to always cover themselves up. They just feel so legitimate and so healed as they breastfeed. It's sort of like they're... uh, tapping into the greater, a greater body of truth and meaning and purpose and design about who they are and this relationship they are called to have with this little creature. The, 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 the nurturing of this vulnerable, dependent creature feels so right to them. It fills their heart with joy, and they want to share that joy, and it results in a picture being posted on Facebook. 
That's sort of the argument for it. Now, I don't have a position on this, uh, but I definitely understand and appreciate the power of experiencing a truth, a joy, a beauty. And you just have to share because it overflows in happiness and joy. Have you ever wanted to take a picture of a flower or take a picture of a sunset or a view? Why do you do that? Why do you feel the need to post something, uh, you know, on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat, your friends? Why do that? Because you're experiencing a moment that's filling you and it has to overflow and be made complete in expression. Right? So that's a recent example. Another one is uh, Stephen Curry. Anybody know who this guy is? Basketball player, just uh, awarded MVP, Right? and Golden State Warriors, and the NBA produced an eight-minute video of this amazing basketball player. And I watched it three times. The first time, I cried, tears streaming down my cheeks because, because he's an underdog. He's tiny by NBA standards, and he's got kind of a scrawny frame, and he started his journey with months of injury. And There were doubters and naysayers in his life, but he kept pushing, and he loves loves the game, and he would practice in the middle of the night so that he can take advantage of an empty facility. And the video, uh, which is incredible all by itself, ends with uh, this image of Steph Curry with this giant beaming smile on his face. Now, the Steph Curry practice and practice and fight the naysayers and fight through his uh, genetic lot in life and all of that hard work so that he can be happy? No, he wasn't aiming at the smile. That smile, you understand, is a byproduct of lots and lots of work and toiling and effort. And none of that was necessarily fun or happy by itself, but it resulted in a joy overflowing. And so another example uh, that hap- of happiness not being something we aim at, and it's so important to start with this, is because our culture has taught us to aim at happiness. It says, you deserve to be happy. Do whatever it takes to be happy. No, 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 no. The means matter. Because happiness is not the end. It's not your right to be happy. It's not something that you draw a target around and just aim at because you're going to miss it. It matters greatly how you experience happiness. It's not a legitimate target. So what do we aim at? If we're not supposed to aim at happiness, what do we aim at? Uh, Today... I want to ask the question and answer, what does it look like to enlarge the human capacity for happiness? And I'm sort of wanting to um, get down to business about the science of happiness. How does it really happen? What does the Bible have to say about happiness? What does the world have to say? What do all these researchers who've been studying happiness for decades, what do they have to say about happiness? And I think there is amazing alignment between Scripture and the study that the world has been doing. 
And the answer basically is this. Happiness takes place over time through what I think uh, we call in the church spiritual formation. Our capacity for happiness is enlarged through the work of formation, which takes time and process. Spiritual formation. So we'll talk about this, and then we'll do a couple of applications, and uh, I'll get my reward. All right? Okay. Spiritual formation. This is what we are aiming for. I'm going to read to us chapter 1. Verse 3 to 6, you can read along up on the screen or in your bulletins, there's a sermon passage, the sermon passage printed out for you. Every time I think of you, I thank my God. And whenever I mention you in my prayers, it makes me happy. This is because you have taken part with me in spreading the good news from the first day you heard about it. God is the one who began this good work in you, and I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns. The very first thing I want you to see is underlined for us on the screen there, my God, in verse 3, and in verse 6, God is the one. So I want us to start with God because authorial intent matters authorial intent. I was a literature major, and so we studied lots and lots of different books. I ended up studying Shakespeare, but uh, I got to Shakespeare by way of uh, postmodern literature, and uh, I absolutely struggled with postmodern literature because I love Shakespeare in large part because we always wanted to know what did Shakespeare mean? Why did he use that word? And we learned that he used words not just for their meaning, but, but the way they appeared on the page and the way they sounded on, in the mouth and the way people experienced it in the brain and in the heart. Certain words would create different feelings and have meanings. And Shakespeare was very intentional about his word choices. And I love that. I love asking the question, what is the authorial intent Postmodern literature, on the other hand, said, well, it doesn't matter what the author meant. What does it mean to you? What's your truth about this? Uh, One author, uh, they said, I didn't realize what a genius I was until I walked out of that reading. Because uh, they didn't mean any of those things that all these people were reading into the writing. But they attributed genius to them and uh, intent and motives. And the reason you said this is to create this feeling and to connect these dots. And the author was like, nope, happy accident. Does authorial intent matter? And I would say to you that you and I are not free to just decide to do whatever we want to do because we think it's going to make us happy. When we ask the question of happiness, we're asking, who am I and who am I not? What am I supposed to do? What is my destiny? And really, if we use theological languages, what was I created for? Why did God make me? Why do I exist in such a time and place? 
What is God's will for me? What is good, right, and true, and beautiful? And I want to align myself with the author and the author's intent. And this is the very foundation of happiness. You cannot be happy if you're out of alignment with God's intent for you. Because happiness is a feeling, it's a state we as conscious beings get to experience when we, our lives, our identity, it's in alignment with God's intent. Like a hammer is happy when it's hammering nails. It was meant to do that. I love watching my dog run and I feel joy because a dog is meant to run. A mom that's breastfeeding. Or Stephen Curry sinking another three-pointer. This is all us experiencing the joy of authorial intent and the creature's alignment with the author's intent. And this is so important because our culture has told us, you do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you think will make you happy. Listen, the science of happiness tells you from the secular world that one thing that human beings are terrible at is predicting what will make us happy. We don't know. We cannot predict, try as we might, what will make us happy. We just don't do it. We don't know how to do it. If you are violating God's intent for you, God's intent for other people or for his creation, his created world and order, you're not going to experience happiness. You're going to experience misery. You're going to feel friction, not joy. I love culture. I love the ways that humanity and her thinking is progressing over time. I love it. But a lot of it is just, it's just trendy and it's going to pass away. There is deeper truth you want to look for. So, for example, our culture says it's important to be happy. I would say absolutely, I agree. If at all possible, let's understand what happiness is about. Now, let's get down to business. What makes us happy? And we got to be honest about that. Take the word happiness from culture, bring that to the Bible, and say what makes us happy. And the scripture says it is God who is at work in you. It's God. From the first day, it was God. God is the absolute foundation of our identity and function. And our conscious experiencing of that alignment with our creator is happiness. If you violate God's intent for you, you've started off on the wrong foot. A phrase that uh, I hear all the time uh, is the phrase, your truth, my truth. Culture, just, it's like a hot item these days. I'm sure it's like uh, in, in the corporate world, is this a hot word? I hear it all the time. And I get, I understand what your truth, my truth means. It's, you know, don't overwrite my story. I have a story. I want to tell it my way, and I want to tell you the meaning of my story. I get it. That makes sense. I don't want to define you. I define me, you define you. But, It's uncomfortable for me to think about truth as a totally subjective thing. Is there such a thing as the author's intent? What did the author mean originally? And because of that, 
the author gets to do work. It is God who began this work in you. And Paul says, and he won't stop until Christ returns. And then Paul's joy that he's, exper- uh, he's expressing to the church at Philippi is because they understand this until from the first day, and in other translations it says, until now. You've been participating in God's work in you. So if you want to understand happiness, you begin with God's intent, God's will, God's purpose for you. Asking that question. And then you ask the question, well, if happiness is the experience I get to have as I come into alignment with God's intent for me, how do I get into alignment with God's intent for me? And that's what the Bible calls God's work. God is always working in us to bring us into alignment with his will for us. And most of the time, it's going to take time and process, and it's not going to be fun. Uh, Modern-day language you might use is practice or training. God is saying, I made you, and I'm going to do this work over time and over process. And you aren't going to love it most of the time because it's going to feel like practice and training. And through practice and through training, I'm going to create capacity in you for happiness because that work is aligning you to my will, my original intent for you. There's the theology of the vessel that God created us to be empty vessels. And he fills us with himself, his will, his truth, his desires for us, and those things overflowing. That's happiness. That's joy. And the problem is we're not empty vessels. We're filled with lies and self-centeredness and shortcuts and escape mechanisms. We don't know how to be filled with good things, and so we keep just pulling in uh, just garbage and uh, filling, uh, filling the space with things that don't bring us joy. And God says, no, I have to do this work to empty you out. But that emptying work, it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be instant. It's going to feel like time and process. Uh, I'm taking a little break from running between running training seasons. And so I've been rowing, indoor rowing, doing it for about two months now. And uh, I've been setting uh, personal records every week. I'm really, really pushing myself, and I don't like it. I have this feeling of dread come over me as I think about sitting in that garage by myself and just working this machine. And I'm, because I'm pushing myself Last three days, I've set three personal records in a row. I hate this feeling of not being able to get enough oxygen into my lungs. It's like I'm breathing as hard as I can, but it's not enough. It's painful. It's agonizing. And I have an emotional reaction to that feeling even before I do it. But the results, they speak for themselves. (laughs) 
I, that was not a joke. <laughs> God's work, the author's work. So I'm going to define happiness for us, okay? Uh, derived from Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. Ready? Happiness is, there's three parts to this I want you to understand. The conscious being's experience, okay? And what I'm trying to say is, you're not aiming directly at it. You just experience it while you're aiming for something else, okay? But it's your experience of it, of being in alignment with God's intent. So as you align with God's will, your conscious being begins to experience something. And that's what we call happiness. But it happens through God's work because he's the author. It's his work. He alone knows who you are. And it takes time. So happiness is the conscious being's experience of being in alignment with God's intent through God's work over time. Now, when you read that, you don't think, oh, my gosh, of course, that's happiness. That's not my reaction when I read it. It sounds like, oh, wow, how long is that going to take and how much is it going to hurt? Because I don't have control because it's God. And it's going to take a while and I'm not going to enjoy it. But think about Stephen Curry's face, how he smiled. Think about the joy that a mom gets to experience after the pains of childbirth. That's what real, deep, powerful happiness is. It takes work over time. Now, I'm not making this up just from the Bible. Go out there, read every book you can find that's based on study and research from people who are studying the science of happiness. This is what they will tell you that you have to do work to raise what they call your happiness quotient. It doesn't just happen. External circumstances cannot raise your external, in, internal happiness quotient. It's a whole process that takes years and years and years to raise your default level of happiness. A biblical word for this long process, is sanctification. To be made holy, to be made whole, to be made in alignment with God's original intent for us. Sanctification. A more accessible word might be spiritual formation. That God is engaged in the work of forming us over time. Now, if you don't like this, then you're not going to be happy. That's, that's the truth. Uh, let's do a couple of application points. Uh, the first is learn. I want to give you an opportunity to read about this stuff uh, that I've been uh, naming. There's lots of books on happiness, uh, but just uh, to... Um, Cut to the chase here. I want to offer up a blog that I read uh, every week. Uh, it's called Freakonomics.com. And all of the URLs are in the sermon notes, so you don't have to write it down. Um, but it's a podcast on the idea of grit. And grit is, I think, our modern-day word uh, for the process 
of creating our capacity for happiness. It takes grit. Another uh, resource is uh, David Brooks. He wrote a new piece uh, this month, actually just this week, on uh, the idea of grit in the New York Times. And he's writing about the same book that the Freakonomics uh, article is about. And so both will get you to the same book. The book basically says this, that grit plays a huge role in the role of happiness. And it breaks down uh, grit into these four things. The first, it says, uh, you have to tap into a desire. And I love how grit, the idea of grit begins with desire. You're not just gritty about everything. You first have to ask the question of authorial intent. What am I interested in intrinsically? What's interesting to me? What resonates with me? What's a desire for me? And the book says you have to start with desire first because you're not just grabbing at anything. You're grabbing at something that's intrinsic to you. Now, it doesn't say this, but what it's really implying is there's an author. There's an author who made you, who designed you, who created you. And there's a reason you desire one thing over another because it resonates with you, your uh, DNA. It's pointing to a God. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is practice. And this is the long, long part that's not fun. Nobody loves practice for its own sake because it's painful, especially if you're pushing yourself. Practice, practice, practice. And then the author, she goes on to say, and you can't just do it in a vacuum. You really need the support system of other people. So she says you have to connect. And then lastly, she says you have to find hope, belief that there is a greater purpose or power pulling you forward, almost guaranteeing that you are going to change. You are going to improve. Now, all of these four things, desire, practice, connect, and hope, it really sounds like a good four-word summary for Philippians 1, 3 to 6. Beginning with authorial intent all the way down to hope. Second uh, application point is come. And I want to talk about our church for just a second. Uh, I've been writing and thinking about this culture that we all live in called the opt-in culture. And what this culture tells us is this. Make momentary decisions about how you spend your time. You craft for yourself. You customize your own experience, your own day. Don't do what you don't feel like doing. Do the things you feel like doing. Opt in or opt out at will. Just optimize your calendar any way you see fit. That's the culture, right? We're not obligated to anything or anyone. Somebody uh, texts you. You don't have to answer it. Somebody emails you. You can ignore it. It doesn't matter because you don't feel like communicating at that moment. There is no sense of obligation like, oh, I have to answer the phone because it's ringing. People don't feel a sense like they have to answer the phone anymore. They get annoyed that somebody left the ringer on. Right? There was a time when the phone were ringing. We run to the phone. An obligation to communicate. Right? But often culture says, no, it's all about you. You are the master and the crafter of your own destiny. 
But here is what the theology of happiness, and I would say the science of happiness says. That really meaningful formation happens over time. And the great value that the church service, for example, and the programs of the church offer is formation over time. And here is the truth, that the church work that you are invited to, it's like, it's, I feel like I'm inviting instant results loving consumers to partake in a mostly invisible work that takes place on the inside over a long period of time. Think about this. How do we sustain the value of church when the product we offer is your spiritual formation, which is mostly invisible to you week to week to week? And what the church has said is, come to church every week, And in 10 years, look back and see if you've changed even a little bit. It's saying that most of the change in your life that you value happens invisibly and gradually. And only once in a while do you see what work God has been doing all along. That's partly why the church is struggling so much in this cultural climate. Because our product is so slow and so time-consuming and invisible. How do you convey its value to an instant-loving consumeristic society who's out to customize and optimize their feeding schedule? So here we are. I invite you to come participate in this long, slow, deliberate work that God himself is doing through the local church, the work of spiritual formation. Um, Let me conclude with a story uh, and uh, uh, a reading as our prayer. I want to share uh, just for a moment about where I'm coming from with this, to this concept of happiness. Uh, for most of my life, I struggled with depression. And uh, in high school and a lot in college and a lot at, in grad school, uh, I was sort of a manic person. I'd be super productive for like three months. Like you couldn't stop me. I'd get everything done. And then for like a month, I could do nothing. I just would become depressed and down. It's hard to get out of bed. I would hole up with a pile of like 14 books and just read book after book after book, often reading three or four books at a time. And I wouldn't see people. I get so down on myself. I got rid of my mattress. I got rid of my pillow. I was just sleeping on the floor with a blanket and a pile of books and a lamp. And then I would somehow snap out of it and get super productive and engaged in the world again, and I'd disappear really inconsistent person. And I remember when I went to get uh, assessed to be a church planter, this was, uh, um, you know, a decade and a half ago when I was being assessed for church planting. uh, A bunch of people were observing me for four days and uh, running tests through me and uh, seeing me in group dynamics and stuff. And they said to me, they gave me this feedback. They said, Peter, you are so amazing in leadership. And then you disappear. What happened? 
they were able to observe my manic nature um, in those four days. And I just felt so much shame about that because that's true about me. I can tell you uh, this one comment that still sort of hangs over my head. One of those uh, observers uh, was saying this to another observer, but I accidentally overheard it. And it's just been crushing to me ever since. He said, Peter can have a dampening effect. That one hurts a lot. Because I've always, you know, like John Peterson has uh, articulated so well, leaders bring energy. You know, if you interact with a leader, you want to feel energized afterwards, not drained. Right? I didn't want to have a dampening effect. I just felt like such a loser of a leader. I can tell you today, and you can check with my wife, I am so much more consistent and happy than I've ever been before, but I have no idea how it happened. I look back, and I know God worked, but I don't know how and when. When did this healing, formative work take place? It took place over time. And the other uh, insight I have as I look back on my less happier self is I am happier today than before not because I've been able to align the world to me, but because I've been able to experience alignment in me to God's original will for me. I have changed. I think humility and happiness are best friends. Let me close for us with Hebrews chapter uh, 12. This will be our uh, prayer for us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Do you receive it today? Amen.